Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is typically a, a day when churches across the world reflect on what is known as the triumphal entry. Now on Good Friday, we remember Jesus when he was crucified on a cross. On Easter Sunday, he rose victoriously from death. But the preceding Sunday, Palm Sunday, is when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, if there was ever a time for Jesus to make an entry, it was this day that we commonly call Palm Sunday now. Um, it was during the time of the Passover. This was the bu busiest and the biggest of all Jewish festivals. Now, up until this point, for the preceding three years, Jesus had ministered in the north of the country. He had uh, taught many people. He had healed many people. He performed miracles, signs and wonders. Word about Jesus had spread far and wide across Israel. Now, we need to bear in mind, these, we're talking days before Instagram, Twitter, WhatsApp, BBC News. This was word of mouth. Who Jesus was and what he did had spread far and wide. And at this point, Jesus' life and ministry were about to come to a climax in the capital, Jerusalem. But this entrance into Jerusalem was actually dripping with significance. Oftentimes, kings in the ancient world would ride on into a city and in so doing, they would be greeted by their people. It's the kind of thing that kings would do. So Jesus, in riding on into Jerusalem, was essentially saying, I am the king and I am bringing a new kingdom. And whereas most kings would ride on a, on a, on a horse, so Alexander the Great would, would ride on a war horse, Jesus did not come on a horse, he came on a donkey. And um, this is not because he wasn't able to put his hands on a horse. It was very intentional. You see, back in the Old Testament, a few hundred years before these events, there was a prophet called Zechariah. And Zechariah prophesied that one day a perfect king would come. A king who would rule with perfect wisdom and perfect justice, perfect righteousness. And in fact, a king who would reign forever. And this kingly figure was known as the Messiah or the promised one. It was the one that all of the Jewish people put their hopes on. Zechariah prophesied that this king would ride on into Jerusalem on a donkey. But Zechariah also prophesied that those who witnessed this perfect king would respond to him with rejoicing and with thanksgiving. And that's exactly what happened. As Jesus rode on in through the streets of Jerusalem, there were people who gathered around him, they laid down their cloaks, they cut down palm trees, palm leaves, and they responded with worship and thanksgiving. They exclaimed, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Essentially, they were saying glory to the son of David or salvation belongs to the son of David. They were fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. But the interesting thing is that the, 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 the praise, the worship of Jesus was not confined to the streets. Later on, Jesus, he rode into Jerusalem. He found his way into the temple, the temple courts. And in the temple courts, that same cry was ringing out. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. But now this cry wasn't going up from adults. It was actually coming out of the mouths of, of children. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Now there were some religious leaders gathered there in a temple who did not like what they heard. Quite likely there were a number of reasons for that. Maybe the fact that there was, there was noise in the temple they didn't like. I can imagine they didn't like the fact that this noise was coming from children. I think they probably would have went to kind of shoo the kids away. 
But most significantly, I think what really got these religious leaders was the fact that this was worship directed to Jesus. And they approached Jesus and they asked him, they said, well, Jesus, do you not hear what they are saying? And obviously, clearly, Jesus would have heard what they were saying. But in asking this question, really, there was, there was an implication there. And the implication was, well, Jesus, this should not be happening. You should not be allowing this to happen. They should not be speaking about you in such a way. This is entirely improper. That was the implication as to their question. So how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds by saying, have you not read? And um, interestingly enough, this was a, a fairly common response for Jesus when talking to uh, religious leaders, many of whom would have known their Bibles back to front, the Old Testament they would have known off by heart, many of whom would have claimed to have known the law and followed the law perfectly. They would have claimed to have been in good relationship with God. Jesus often says to those people, have you not read? And whenever Jesus says, have you not read? He's going to give us a, a lesson in the Old Testament. He's going to go back to something that they should have read, should have understood, but clearly haven't. And what Jesus does in this case is he, he refers, he paraphrases one of the Psalms, Psalm 8. And his reason for paraphrasing this Psalm was really to answer that question, why is it appropriate that Jesus receives worship? Now, the original readers or, or hearers of Psalm 8 wouldn't have been thinking about Jesus. They would have been thinking about God or God the Father. But what Jesus does here is he reinterprets it and he makes it about directly about himself. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Psalm 8. As we do so, we're going to have in our minds that question, why is it good and appropriate to worship God and more specifically to worship Jesus? So I'm going to read for us Psalm 8 and then we will dive into it. Okay, so Psalm 8 says this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what we have in Psalm here, Psalm 8, sorry, what we have in Psalm 8 is um, we have a really clear and definitive structure to this psalm. It's quite common for the psalms to be very tightly uh, structured. And in this case, what we will notice with verses 1 and 9, so the first and the last verse are actually repeated. They are the same. And it's clear to us that the writer, the writer was a man called King David. It becomes clear to us that actually there's something that David really wants us to take away. And if we don't get it at the very top of the psalm, he's going to loop back around to it at the bottom. There's something that he's wanting to draw our attention to. He wants to ensure that we understand something, that we take something away, that it changes us. 
In fact, if you were to, to think of, you could think about Psalm 8 in slightly different terms. You could think about it almost like a, a sandwich, right? So um, any good sandwich has at least two slices of bread, okay? You, no bread, no sandwich. The whole thing falls apart, okay? Uh, David has crafted a sandwich for us. Verses 1 and 9 function as the bread. So what do they tell us? What do we see in verses 1 and 9? Well, I believe that we see that it is good to worship God. Now, we are being encouraged to, to talk to each other, aren't we? Uh, in these days of, of social distancing and, and self-isolation, we are being encouraged more than ever before to communicate with one another, to talk to each other. WhatsApp, FaceTime, Zoom, Skype, whatever platform you use, we are being encouraged to remain connected and to talk to each other. Recently, actually, I've, I've, I've heard some really positive things being spoken about others. I'm often grieved at the negative things I hear other people say about others. But recently, particularly concerning the NHS, um, our healthcare workers, key workers, there's been a lot of positivity, a lot of positive things spoken about others. And we are all being encouraged into that. And last week, Andy talked to us about talking to ourselves, occasionally putting ourselves aside and having a word with our own souls. So we're encouraged to talk to each other, to talk well about each other, and to talk to ourselves. But I'd like to put it to us today that the, the highest activity of humanity is in fact talking to God about God. Telling God who he is, what he has done, and why that is significant. In short, worship. I believe that is the highest activity of humanity. And it's interesting when you look at this particular psalm, Psalm 8, it is utterly God-directed. It is not even as though David, the, the, the psalmist, the writer, is, is talking to other people about God. No, it's all to God and about God. You might notice if you look at verses 1 and 9 that the, the word Lord is repeated twice. The first time in your Bibles... Lord is in all capitals, and the second time, it's just the, the L that is in a capital. Now, we're not going to get into, into the detail of that, but essentially what is happening here is that in this verse, as we come to this verse, we say, Lord, that's the, the personal name of God. It's rendered Lord. It would be Yahweh, maybe in Hebrew. So we come and we address God personally. Oh, Lord, our Lord. That second Lord refers to his position, his, type, his, his position of authority, over us. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We recognize his deeds, his reputation, the things that he has done. So we come and we address God personally. We recognize his position and his authority and we give thanks for who he is and what he has done. You know, the, the fascinating thing is that in that, in that temple, on that day, on Palm Sunday, the day of the triumphal entry, there were kids there who probably didn't know a great deal of their Bible. They would, they would have known a little bit, but they probably didn't know a great deal. There were scholars gathered there, uh, uh, religious leaders who would have known, again, they would have known their Old Testament off by heart. But the fascinating thing to me is that it is the kids who got it right. In the presence of God, the kids are worshipping and the religious leaders are silent. The kids have got it absolutely right. 
And you know, one of my, one of my abiding uh, passions is for us as a church, in fact, everyone in the world, uh, to want to know and to understand God, to want to pick up our Bibles and, and go really deep in understanding who God is and what God says, an absolutely abiding passion of mine. But the reality is that we can know the Bible from cover to cover. We could, we could, we could be able to translate it from the Greek or the Hebrew or whatever. If what we know and understand of God does not result in worship, something's gone wrong somewhere. There is something defective. And I look at this, this scenario, I look at this situation with the, the kids, the religious leaders in Jesus, and I think, wow, if I'm going to pick to be like anyone, I'm going to go for the kids. They didn't know a great deal of Bible, but they did the right thing with it. They recognised who Jesus was and they responded with worship. You know, worship is an outflow. It's an outflow of the mind and the heart. It's a function of what we understand and, and what we do with what we understand, if that makes sense. And can I just say that today, if you, are, uh, if you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been looking in for a while, you've, you've been trying to understand who this Jesus is, can I encourage you that if, if recently you have, you have found worship beginning to well up in you, this, this desire to express worship or praise to God, that might be a bit of a sign or a bit of an indication, actually, you might be ready to cross that line of faith. Because worship is one of the defining, distinguishing marks of what it is to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It is good and it is right to worship God. But why worship God? The Bible is full of, full of commands and instructions and encouragements to worship God, but but why? Why does the Bible say, sing to the Lord a new song, worship the Lord, praise the Lord, extol him, lift him up, magnify him? Why worship God? And that is a good question to ask. And, and helpfully, David, the psalmist, has given us some reasons to worship God in this particular psalm. And the first one is this. He has set his glory above the heavens. We find that in the first verse. You know, we, we give praise, don't we, because we are, um, we're impressed at something or someone. And we're often impressed because we experience glory or, or weightiness, maybe. Just for a few moments, just consider uh, maybe with me, think about uh, an Olympic gymnast. So it might be someone on the, on the pommel horse or the, or, the, or the high bars, or maybe even think about uh, the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, who painted those wonderful, glorious paintings on, that, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. When we look at, watch, hear, an amazing singer, a, a superb artist, a, a really talented athlete, what essentially is happening is we are experiencing something of glory, something that is transcendent, it is beyond us, it, is, it, it, it has weight and significance. And when we experience glory, our natural response as human beings is to praise. It's almost, it's almost impossible not to praise. We find it really difficult not to talk about how amazing that thing is. So we experience glory with an amazing, amazing picture or, or, or a beautiful song or a, a, an athlete at the, at the top of their field. But I think at this point we do well to, to hear some words from... Um, one of my favourite writers, authors, uh, someone called C.S. Lewis. And this is what uh, Professor Lewis says. He says this. 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I'd maybe paraphrase what, what Lewis said there, and, and I would say, we are far too easily impressed. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I could never in a million years do what Michelangelo does. Uh, I could never in a million years do what those Olympic gymnasts do. But if we just slow down for a few moments, we might recognise that Michelangelo is only really copying what God has already done. Michelangelo's creativity is just a, 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 a tiny smidgen of the creativity of God. That Olympic gymnast doing their, their, their amazing stuff, that, that gymnast has been made by God. And I think that's what David is wanting to, to drill into our heads at this moment. That whatever glory we see or experience in, in, in others, that is just a small measure of the glory that is in God. And that's why he says that his glory goes above the heavens. It's as though David is trying to find the biggest words or the biggest language that he can to describe how magnificent and awesome God is. There is no limit or boundary to his glory. And we might hear that and think, well, that, that's great, that's, that's fantastic, but I can't really get my, my, my head or my heart around what that actually looks like. Well, helpfully, God gives us so many examples in life and the Bible as to what his glory actually looks like. He breaks it down for us. And there's, a, there's, a, um, there's an account of this, actually, in the Bible, in the book of Job. Job is a, is a man who is considered to be, to be righteous, a good man, a holy man. Job has experienced significant suffering in life. And um, one of the ways that, that God loves Job in this particular situation is actually not by appealing to Job's self-esteem but actually by telling Job about how glorious he is, how glorious God is. Now let's be clear, this is not the only way that, that God loves Job or God would love us but one of the ways that God loves people is by telling people about himself and actually what we're going to do for a few moments is actually we're going to read a few verses from Job, from Job uh, chapter 38 and verses 4 through to 18. Now, these words were originally spoken from God to Job, not us, but I think we would do really well to listen, to hear those words, to hear what God says about himself, to recognise the difference between us and him, to see what it looks like for his glory to be above the heavens. So this is what God says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sun sh sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal 
and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. There is a big distinction between us and God. He has set his glory above the heavens. And that is a fantastic reason to worship him. But it is not the only reason. David gives us a few more reasons in this psalm. Let's move on to the second one. So he has set his glory above the heavens. He cares for humanity. Now, there are many combinations in life, in life which uh, make no sense at all. Uh, consider the combination of a, a hot pudding and cold dessert. This was mentioned to me a few weeks ago, and I, I'm, I'm still trying to rack my brain around how that one works. Or how about um, this phenomenon, this chocolate-orange phenomenon? Now, apparently there is a market out there for, for chocolate and orange together in one product. Now, I like chocolate. I like orange. Chocolate and orange together, I'm still trying to rack my brain around. The fact that people actually eat this chocolate-orange thing and, and genuinely like it, I still don't understand. But apparently that is a combination that works but it's a quandary in my mind. Now, David is, is also in a quandary in this psalm, but it's a more significant quandary than chocolate and orange. You see, the quandary for David is, well, he's thinking on the one hand, God has created the universe, he's running the universe, he's, he's looking after all of it. In fact, the, the language that David uses is, is, is of, of God, even with his hands, his fingers, he set the moon and the stars in place fingers, moon and stars in place. So God is big, he's glorious, he's majestic, he is sovereign, he is immense. All of those, 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 those words that you want to use to describe something that is just is big, that's God. So, so, so David in his mind is, is, is grappling with understanding that God is big on the one hand, he is powerful, but also what is mankind that you are mindful of him, the son of man? that you care for him. David is trying to put those two things together. God is big, God is sovereign, God is powerful, but God is also mindful of humanity. You know, the language of the Bible is, is of God being our father. It would appear that in the Bible, and the history of mankind, that God has a special attention and affection that is directed towards humanity. He is not described as a father to the angels, to the mountains, to, to whales or animals, by the Father to humans, to people. God is mindful of you. The Bible tells us that even the very hairs on our heads are numbered. The Bible tells us that we were knit together in our mother's womb. The, 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 the resounding sound from the Bible is that God has set his affections on humanity. He's, he's running the universe with his fingers. He's ruling it all perfectly. And yet that same massive, glorious God has a particular attention and affection that is directed towards you today, wherever you are. God is mindful of you. Can I, can I encourage you with that? Even if no one else in the world is thinking about you or caring for you, God is mindful of you. 
So he has set his glory above the heavens. He cares for humanity. He also gives tremendous dignity to humanity. Now imagine for a few moments you are, um, let's think about um, post-self-isolation post days, being in a park and playing football. Just a bit of a kickabout. And um, to your surprise, you see two figures approaching you. One is uh, Harry Kane and the other one is Lucy Bronson, two England football players. And they say, can we, can we come and join you? Can we, can we play for your team? And, and clearly my response would be absolutely yes, come on board. The reality is if I had Harry Kane and Lucy Bronze in my team, I'd probably say to them, do you know what? Um, Lucy, you keep it tight at the back. Harry, you go and get the goals and I will just like, stay out of trouble. I won't get in your way. And I'm sure they would respond in the same way. They would say, Ash, just, just, just don't do anything, basically. We've, we've got this, got this under control. Now let's, let, let, let's change it. Let's, let's, let's go from a, that football match to we're no longer playing football, but we're thinking about the, the ruling of the world, how the world works and functions. And we're no longer talking about international football players, Harry Kane and Lucy Bronze. We're talking about God. If it's entirely legitimate for Harry and Lucy to, to handle the, the football match by themselves, surely we'd expect the same from God when it comes to, to ruling the world and caring for the world. Uh, law, healthcare, education, the arts, surely he could do it all himself, all by himself, a lot easier, a lot simpler than getting us involved with all the mistakes that we make. Surely that's what God would do. Well, that's not what God does. And I think this is part of what David is trying to wrap his mind around. That is not what God does. What does it say? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God has given tremendous dignity to humanity. God has created us, he has gifted us all uniquely, and he has deployed us for the purpose of almost ruling the earth in his stead, ruling on his behalf. What a tremendous honour and privilege he gives to humanity. You know, anyone who's ever um, maybe represented a school or a county at some form of sport will know the pride of, of putting on the kit. So whether it be the vest or the t-shirt or the tracksuit, you know the tremendous sense of pride that comes from wearing that, that representative kit. England football players often talk about, they talk about the pride in wearing a badge, the three lions. Um, the reality is, if you are a human, God has put his imprint on you. Whereas with the football kit, you can, you can put it on, you can take it off. God has put his imprint on you forever. You are made in his image and his likeness. That is something to be proud about. That is something to be delighted about. God has put his imprint on you. He is saying, whoever you are, you are one of my representatives on earth. He gives tremendous dignity to humanity. We've been crowned with glory and with honour. So that is another reason for us to worship God. He has set his glory above the heavens. He cares for humanity. He has given tremendous dignity to humanity. 
But there is one more thing. There is one more reason to worship. And we're actually going to look, we're going to, um, we're going to hear some words again from Professor C.S. Lewis. Um, and hopefully he will help us to discover what that final thing is. So this is C.S. Lewis uh, in the book Prince Caspian. And this is what he says. You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan, and that is both honour enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. And I think um, Professor Lewis, as he's articulated something really profound, it's through the lips of Aslan, something really profound about humanity. Something that we also find in this psalm, and that is that humanity has honour in being made in God's image. But humanity also carries shame because his image in us is distorted due to sin. And sin is simply the the things that we think, say and do which are displeasing and dishonouring to God. All the ways that we essentially turn away from God and and seek to um, essentially usurp his position and put ourselves in the highest place. There is honour in being made in his image, but there is also shame because we do not reflect his image perfectly. We are broken people. And some of the effects of sin mean that we are separated from God. We are not in that relationship with God that was originally intended for us. We are deserving of uh, punishment for our wrongdoing, for for our rebellion. And we are also broken. We do not function the way that we ought to function. We are not the way that we were originally designed by God. And the reality is we are utterly, by ourselves, utterly unable to change any of that. But there is one who is able and his name is Jesus. And Jesus comes and what he does is he, he, he offers humanity a swap or, or an exchange. And Jesus comes and, and the fascinating thing about Jesus is that he, he has no shame of his own because he's only ever lived and done perfectly. So Jesus comes and he only has honour. He only has glory. And he comes and on that day that he died on that cross on Good Friday... What was essentially happening between Jesus and humanity was that there was a swap taking place. And Jesus was saying, look, I will take on myself your shame. I will take to myself that separation that should rightly be yours, that separation between you and God. I will pay your debt. I will sacrifice my life for your sin. And in exchange, you can have my perfect relationship with God the Father and you can be free from sin. He was exchanging honour for shame. Three days later, he rose victoriously from the dead. And in so doing, it was as though he he was putting a marker down in the ground to say, it is done, it is finished. I have done it for humanity, for those who put their trust in me. And one of the most delightful realities in all this is that for those who trust in Jesus, for those who put their faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that God, the Holy Spirit himself, comes and lives in us. Just just imagine that for a moment. God himself comes and lives in us. This is the same God who has set his glory above the heavens, 
who loves us, who cares for us, who gives us dignity and honour. He comes and he makes his home in us. But not only that, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, when he comes and lives in us, it says that we are being, by the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed with ever-increasing glory into the likeness of Jesus. Essentially, God the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus. He is restoring our brokenness. He is restoring that, 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 that glory uh, that, that is in us, that God has made in us. God is doing in us something that we've been utterly unable to do by ourselves. So guys, just to, just to close, let's remember, his glory is above the heavens. His glory is seen in his love and care for humanity. His glory is seen in the dignity that he gives to humanity. But his glory is most perfectly seen, the focus of his glory, the, the triple espresso shot of the glory of God is seen in Jesus who comes, who rescues and restores us to how we were intended to be. Look, folks, God has given us numerous reasons to worship him, numerous good reasons to worship him. There are even more than we've looked at today. And I would say whether you today consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus or not, I would encourage all of us to ponder these things, to give time and attention, to be thinking about the glory of God and in so thinking, responding with worship and saying along with David the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, now, folks, in a, in a, a few moments, um, Jamie will, will lead us as we take communion together. I would love to pray for us before we do so. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We can barely even comprehend the, the, the height and the depth and the, and the length and the width of your glory and your majesty. But Lord, I thank you that you have given us some capacity uh, to appreciate how glorious you are. I thank you that you've shown it in creation. I thank you that you've shown it in your care for humanity. I thank you for the tremendous dignity that you give to each and every one of us. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus. I thank you that Jesus has come. He's shown us the way. Thank you that Jesus has given his life. He's suffered. He's died where I ought to have suffered and died. And I thank you for that tremendous hope of the return of Jesus. I thank you, Father, that Jesus will come again. And I thank you that when he comes again, he will make all things right. He is that perfect king, that perfect king promised in the Old Testament. And Father, I say, I long for that day when Jesus returns. And may all of us, all of us long for that day. May we all look forward to it with, with joy and with excitement. And I say, Lord Jesus, please come, come quickly. We long as your people to receive you and to worship you as they did on Palm Sunday. We long to worship you because you are worthy of our praise. Amen.